This is Cast Club Radio. Brought to you by Heritage Distilling. On Cast Club Radio, we believe every spirit has a story. And stories like good drinks are always better when shared with friends. Each week, we'll explore the intersection of cocktails, spirits, beer, wine, and life. It's Cast Club Radio. Here's your hosts, Lydia Cruz and Justin Stiefel. Good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Cast Club Radios. Thanks so much for joining us today. My name is Lydia Cruz. And I'm Justin Stiefel. And I'm Maura Dooley. And man, wow, school time really snuck up on us here. Justin, you are the one with uh, several kids that you have to worry about going back to school. Is the frenzy already started? The back to school shopping, everything? Well, several kids makes it sound like we're some pioneer family. No, I mean, and, I was gonna uh, say, I was gonna say the only one with kids here, but yeah, you have exponentially yeah, okay. more right. than Mora and myself. There you go. Mora you is go. a dog um, mom, so that counts. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, all right. Yeah, we have three kids. Jennifer and I have three kids. Uh, our oldest, fifteen, will turn sixteen in October. He already has his driver's license because in Washington State, if you take the driver's ed and pass the class, you get your license about ninety days early. You can't use it. But you have it, and then when you turn 16 on your birthday, then you're legal to drive. So he's yeah. got that. He'll be a sophomore, and then I've got the two uh, younger ones who are going into eighth grade and fifth grade, and school starts on Thursday. And I'm a little shocked because I'm still waiting for summer to start. So I don't know. I know. It I'm feels confused like confused about everything happening all at once. It does. It definitely felt like such a late start that, like, Lydia, I think it was last week when you were talking about preseason football and how it makes you think of fall. I was like, no, yeah. not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, back-to-school shopping was always my favorite part, but not even the clothes. It was the school supplies. I was going to say, you're still like that as an yeah, adult. Let's, yeah, let's be honest. I haven't really evolved much. <laughs> Anytime you get a brand-new highlighter set, it's just about the most thrilling thing I can think of. So um, I know there's a lot of kids out there that are in the same boat as me. But now we have football as well. The third preseason game is today for the Seahawks. Uh, roster cuts are right around the corner, and this thing is getting underway. It is. It's uh, it's happening, and uh, I think people are excited to uh, see what this team has in store. And uh, yeah, obviously, the quarterback situation's uh, locked in for a while now, and I'm interested to see what happens with uh, Metcalf's knee surgery that uh, was talked about this week. Yeah, I mean, Pete Carroll made it sound pretty minor, says hopefully he'll be ready for week one. I know he was limping a little bit when I was out there at practice last Friday, but I, I think he's going to be okay. It's just It always stinks when it's a rookie because you want them to get as many reps as possible. Uh, exactly. Yeah, and, and one as highly touted as him, who I know has a great work ethic. So we'll hope, hope to see him back in the mix here shortly. In the meantime, what's in the headlines this week? Well, uh, I don't know if you've been watching the TV show about Chernobyl, uh, the HBO miniseries, but now a distillery in that region of the Ukraine has developed atomic vodka, an artisanal spirit made from water and grain harvested from the once forbidden reactor zone of the Chernobyl region. So they're basically making vodka from grain out of the Chernobyl area and I don't know how I feel about this. They claim it's safe. One of the articles uh, says that they they think it's safe, it seems to be safe, and so on. They're relying on the uh, idea of the chemistry of the distillation process itself to make sure that any uh, isotopes or any uh, other contaminants from the zone don't get into the final product. But as I used to say, if we can't trust Russia with our elections, how are we going to trust them on this vodka? So I don't know. Would you want to drink a shot of vodka from the no. Chernobyl zone? No, thank you. I feel like, yeah, this is one thing that I could definitely steer clear of. Hard pass. <laughs> Hard pass. 
Hard pass. Yeah, especially <laughs> since the half-life of the of the 137 isotope is still another 180 years away from being in a the truly safe zone. So, wow. Um, wow. Yeah, I'm going to take a hard pass on that. Now, this is more interesting. Our friends at Miller Coors have announced a giveaway. If you're willing to drink what they call, well, what Fast Company calls subpar beer, you could get free rent for a year. They are saying that anyone over the age of 21 can enter a contest via Snapchat. They're using codes found on various Keystone beer displays and cans. If they go on and use the code word cheers on those displays, you can be one of 13 lucky winners, and you'll win free rent for a year. Uh, it's pretty; uh, They're being pretty transparent. The associate brand manager for Miller Coors brand says that research shows if a consumer chooses beer at the age of 21, they're more likely to stick with beer throughout their lifetime. So they're just trying to get 21-year-olds hooked on uh, their cheap beer. <laughs> Noble yeah. campaign there. By Miller Coors, yeah. <laughs> Free rent for a year. Hey, you can finally move out of mom and dad's basement, you know. <laughs> yeah. Just I have to say beer. I'm more on board with this yeah. than the radioactive vodka. I will say that. Yeah. <laughs> so you, I, yeah. Also, you have to take into account that the where the rent, where this might actually yes. equate to free rent for a year because 13 grand prize winners receive $12,000. But, like, if you're splitting that up over, like, 12 months, then you have to... You'd have to find a place, maybe not even in Seattle proper, not San Francisco, oh, not New York. So yeah. it would depend where you are living for sure. You definitely would need roommates, but you'd probably be the most popular roommate in the <laughs> True, because, yeah, uh, very you true. You would have won your rent for a year yeah. with Keystone Light. Last up from geek.com, scientists have developed an artificial tongue to taste the differences in whiskeys. Uh, it's a tongue, it's a mechanical device that uses optical properties of gold and aluminum to test the uh, optical, what they call plasmonic resonance, to identify different types of spirits. They've been able to successfully uh, identify whiskeys aged between 12, 15, and 18 years and actually make distinctions between them by pouring the whiskey over this optical tongue. So why is this important? Well, we remember the news from the last several months about people dying in resorts in the Dominican Republic and Mexico, they think, from tainted alcohol. So the scientists hope that this device can be used to test whether or not alcohol is legitimate and safe to consume or if it's counterfeit and something you should stay away from. So we will continue to follow this and give you more info if this product comes to market. Coming up on Cast Club Radio, a lot of things in our current society are about saving time or about instant gratification, either way you look at it. But could there be a way to make whiskey in just 24 hours, something that typically takes a lot longer than that? We'll discuss it's next on Cast Club Radio. Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. Typically, a key ingredient of great whiskey is lots of time. It's part of the process. Justin, you know this very well. But we're going to get into it yes, just in, in a minute. <laughs> BBC had an article questioning uh, this. Can you make whiskey in just 24 hours? But before we get into that, generally speaking, Justin, can you give us a background on what it takes to make whiskey? Just maybe a general time frame. 
Sure. So, well, it depends on the part of the world you come from and the type of whiskey you want to make. So this particular article, the BBC, is talking about scotch, and uh, the law in Scotland requires whiskey to age for a certain number of years before it can be called scotch. Similar laws in Ireland for Irish whiskey. Here in the U.S., we don't have a minimum time requirement for uh, any whiskey. The whiskey can go in the barrel and literally sit there for five seconds. If you remember earlier this summer, we talked about PBR coming out with uh, their whiskey that had been aged for five seconds. In the U.S., if you want to call it straight whiskey, straight bourbon, straight rye, it's got to sit in the barrel for at least two years. An old type of uh, production of whiskey called bottled in bond, that has to be aged for four years. Uh, So uh, it depends on the kind of product and what you want to put on the label. Chemically speaking, it is also a function of a number of items. It's the type of whiskey and the flavor profile you want to get, the conditions that you age it under. So, for example, in Scotland, whiskey needs to age for many, many years to overcome the fact that it's aging in cooler climates, uh, whereas whiskey aging in Kentucky or Tennessee or even Texas, Arizona, in hot climates um, year-round, the whiskey will get a little more activity and can pick up more aggressive wood notes. So you will see fewer whiskeys with that kind of long-term aging because the temperature allows for it to go a little faster. Also, is a function of the kind of wood you use and the size of barrels. So again, in Scotland, they're using 60-gallon uh, barrels or bigger. Bigger barrels takes longer to age, uh, and they're using wood that has been used. So uh, wood that's been used has fewer chemicals in it and, and the, what we call the good stuff for whiskey. Whereas in America, uh, many of the whiskeys you see today are using brand-new barrels, and those brand-new barrels with brand-new wood are full of uh, all the original items that go into change the chemistry of whiskey. So that's a long way of saying that it depends, but uh, we do know that uh, in using traditional methods, it takes uh, anywhere from two to five to six years for what consumers in the U.S. might think of as a typical whiskey. Has age always also been associated with quality in terms when it comes to whiskey? <clears throat> it, it has, uh, and that's often a mistake. People assume that because something on the label says it's aged 12 years or 18 years or 15 years that it must be good. If you do blind tasting, I, I talk about this on the show with you all over and over again, it really is a function of what you like to drink and the flavor profiles you like. So I've had some of the most famous whiskeys that are 23, 28 years old that have these uh, you know grand stories around them. And you put them next to a really amazing four-year-old whiskey, and sometimes a four-year-old whiskey stands out more, has more interesting notes. It's, it just depends, again. But by and large, consumers equate age with quality, sometimes uh, mistakenly so. And now we come to this article that we found from BBC.com, which is titled, Can You Make Whiskey in Just 24 Hours? Apparently, a U.S. distillery is questioning that notion of whether you need to take a lot of time to make quality product. Yeah, and the thing about this article, they don't really go into detail about the technology that they're using, but this is a company called Endless West. It's out of California. They insist that you can produce whiskey in 24 hours. They say they've analyzed the composition of whiskey at the molecular level and that they can recreate the taste using natural ingredients but without any maturing. 
Now, I don't know what that means because they don't give more details about using natural ingredients. But as the article notes, whiskey making goes back generations. And so uh, if they think they can find a new way to get product to market faster, uh, it shortens the cash cycle and allows the business to do some interesting things. The issue is, can you convince the consuming public? Can you convince retailers? Can you convince bartenders? Uh, and in many cases, can you convince distributors that your whiskey made in 24 hours is going to an appeal to the to the consumer? So the article here talks about authenticity of taste in Scotland. They brought this these uh, whiskeys over that they had made in 24 hours using this technology, and they uh, did blind taste tests and they talked to people. And they got the full range of answers that you might as you might expect from somebody who said uh, it'll never be like single malt. To some, uh, they have a woman here who said it smelled like apricot and peach. It was very smooth and nice. Uh, another taster suggested they must have sneaked some real scotch in it to achieve such an authentic taste. That's an indication that they were getting some of those wood, smoky, and possibly peaty notes on this. Now, again, this article doesn't talk about what they're doing or how they're doing it, but do you remember many months ago, it might have even been last year, we talked about how Metallica had come out with their own whiskey, and mm-hmm. they had done mm-hmm. it in conjunction with uh, master distiller Dave Pickerel. And one of the things, it's called blackened. One of the things that they were claiming about the whiskey was that it was in the barrels, and then the whiskey was, those barrels were sitting next to huge sound equipment. Yeah. And they were having, yeah. using music speakers to make uh, airwaves, and the airwaves and the sonic waves would go through the wood and go through and cause the uh, molecules of the uh, whiskey to interact with the wood in different ways. And that's a product that they have brought to market. There are other companies out there that are currently using in commercial ways technology to apply pressure, different wood that they put into the, the process to get different wood notes, pressure and temperature to try to extract in a much shorter time period some of the depth of character that would normally only come naturally from the micro-oxygenation process as whiskey sits in the barrel. I thought this was an interesting comparison that Alec Lee, the boss of this company, Endless West, made the comparison to almost calling uh, their product the EDM music of the whiskey world because... (laughs) Uh, He said, quote, for us, there's the the analogy of electronic music for whiskey. There's a traditional way of making music that involves various instruments. And then somebody comes along one day and says, you know, I can express this art form digitally. And that sort of opens up the door to new mechanisms of expressing this traditional craft. I thought that was pretty interesting because I do think I'm a huge music fan in the music world. I know that people uh, obviously it's a very popular form of music, EDM, DJs, Judging based on their residencies and all the concerts that they have, the festivals they have, clearly it's a very popular genre of music. But I'd still say within that, uh, within music, it's still almost frowned upon or yeah, like looked definitely. down upon from other genres as not real art. So it would be interesting if this really were to take off in that way because I could see it being very popular, although it still might be you know, frowned upon by other people making whiskey and more traditional methods. Yeah, well, to that point, I, I actually sympathize with that thought process a little bit because, uh, you know, when when you or Mara came to the studio today, what kind of horse did you ride to the studio? 
Uh, Volkswagen Jetta. You didn't yeah. ride a horse. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you drove a car, right? You didn't yes. ride a horse. Um, people are listening to this on a radio that is now using processes to process it before it goes out via radio signal or being downloaded and listened to on digital podcast. That didn't happen 100 years ago. How we grow and harvest food and how we use uh, machinery. Every aspect of our life has changed over the last 100 plus years. So I do believe that there are times where people can use technology and efficiency to create new products that people might find enjoyable. And in this case, if they can develop a way to make an interesting product and have it be something that the consumer wants and it's quality and, and it's uh, repeatable, then the question is how are they going to market this and position it? Because uh, if they try to position it literally next to or as a replacement of traditional whiskey, the whiskey brands and all the liquor companies have literally hundreds of billions of dollars of inventory, brand equity, uh, and intellectual property tied up into the traditional way of making whiskey and selling it to the consumer. So that is the the needle they have to thread here if they can make a good quality product. Well, speaking of good quality products, coming up next on Cast Club Radio, we talk to Jason Parker, co-founder and president of Copperworks Distillery and Tasting Room. So he has a lot of experience of making quality products. And we're going to chat with him about his story and kind of a fascinating one. So that's next right here on Cast Club Radio. to Cast Club Radio. Right now, we are joined by Jason Parker, co-founder, president of Copperworks Distillery and Tasting Room. And you guys are coming up on your six-year anniversary in October, Jason. Can you tell us about how Copperworks got started? Yeah, it's amazing that it's been six years. Uh, we actually started with the idea of uh, distilling beer and turning it into vodka, gin, and whiskey. We uh, have been brewers, uh, I was a brewer uh, since 1989, and my uh, professional brewer in Seattle and my business partner, Micah Nutt, and I were home brewers together for almost 20 years before we opened here. And uh, the whole idea was to make a beer, distill the alcohol, see how it tasted in in whiskey. And uh, gosh, after we did that first little pilot batch, we decided we had to do this. And something I saw on your website that you said a, a lot of people actually don't realize that, that the process of distilling alcohol starts with a pretty much a similar base as brewing beer. That's right. And, and you're absolutely right that all liquor always has to start with, frankly, a beer or a wine in order to um, ferment and make alcohol. And then what distilling does is concentrates it. I think the difference that uh, Micah and I brought to maybe especially the traditional distilleries is a lot of them have been using ancient brewing techniques and practices, things that have been around for hundreds of years uh, that modern brewing techniques would consider to be not quite up to snuff, at least for the quality of the flavors. So we just took our modern brewing science and applied it to distilling. And if anyone has been into your tasting room and toured your distillery, you have some of the biggest and most beautiful equipment in the Northwest. And um, as a fellow distiller, I'm I'm always interested in asking people, why do you choose the equipment you have and the layout and the process? And what were the, what were the things that led to that decision making? 
Yeah, thank you. Uh, we are very proud of the Forsyth stills. So I'll, I'll give you kind of my philosophy on building a distillery, which will answer some of those questions, and then I'll speak specifically to that company. Um, distilling, of course, is separating liquids based on their boiling point, and we don't really get to reinvent the boiling point of alcohol. So distilling should, frankly, be having good equipment that can really capture the alcohol you want and get rid of the alcohols you don't, and then operating that still correctly. So it didn't make sense in our minds to become still builders. A lot of small distilleries may opt for that, but we felt like what we wanted to do was focus on the fermentation, making the flavors that we really wanted, and then uh, learn as much as we could about barrel aging and maturing, because that's where flavors get uh, modified. And then buy what we figured would be the best stills for the types of products we wanted to make. So we had to really focus. Uh, there's a lot of things we can't make. Can't make anything with fruit. We don't have any fruit processing equipment here at all. So everything has to be made from grain. Um, and so that helps narrow down the decision-making. And as we looked around, there are about four or five companies that we felt were super qualified to make uh, high-quality stills of the, of the size we wanted, pretty large uh, size stills. And ultimately, Forsyth, a uh, fifth-generation company in Scotland, has, makes about half of the world's pot stills, so those copper stills you see in Scotland, Japan, Ireland, et cetera, um, and they were available. They did have a three-year lead time, but we got it down to a year and a half and felt pretty good about that. So um, that's who we went with. And I, really, Justin, we have never looked back. That has been a great decision. We've always been happy with the, the quality of the workmanship, the the liquor we can get out of them. And they're a lot of fun to look at. So it's worked out well. And and you guys at Copperworks, uh, <clears throat> the funny story, you know, you and I met probably late 2011 at a Washington Distillers Guild meeting, and you had a different company name for your, your name at that time. You were going to call the <laughs> distillery something else and then ran into trademark issues, and I remember talking to you about that. Um, so a lot has happened uh, since that time, and uh, you have been winning some pretty major awards. Uh, you you do make vodka, you make gin, uh, you're making some amazing whiskeys. What's the thing you're most proud of? Well, this is what we opened to make. We're incredibly proud of the whiskey. We also knew that a small company would need to make a clear spirit. We weren't actually sure if we would have to do that, but when we signed a lease on the Seattle waterfront, <laughs> we knew we needed to make some money to pay for that lease sooner rather than later. And we love gin. Micah and I both really enjoyed gin. As a matter of fact, Micah probably liked gin better than whiskey at that time. He was just learning about all the different aspects of whiskey, but was already a, a gin aficionado. So when uh, when we we did, in fact, start out, after many months of trying to name the company, uh, we started out as Derby Distilling. I'm from Kentucky. Kentucky's famous for the Kentucky Derby. We, at that time, saw a lot of people dressed up in the um, kind of the bowler hat look with the armband and the vest. And it just seemed like a name that might work. It wasn't great, but is all we could come up with. And then not too much longer, we learned that was failing in trademark. 
we were advised to name the company something in front of the word derby, you know, downtown derby, tilted derby, big derby, whatever. We named it big derby. That failed in trademark again. And then we looked around at 10,000 pounds of copper on its way from England and thought, I think we ought to name it Copper Works. You know, the people who make stills are frequently called Copper and Brass Works. Uh, we have one here in C- South Seattle, Alaskan Copper and Brass Works. So we sort of borrowed from the industry, came up with Copper Works. That turned out to be a much better name. All of us liked it a lot better. And, uh, and believe it or not, it was not trademarked. So we got it. And those big Fantastic. copper stills, as yeah. Justin mentioned, are a work of art on their own. I've been in, and, I, and they're beautiful to look at. You, you're really welcoming to people that want to come in and do tastings and tours of the distillery as well, right? That's right. When I helped build Pyramid Breweries, gosh, what was that, in 2000, on Seattle Waterfront, I learned the value of kind of having floor-to-ceiling glass and having it so that people could walk right in and see, at that time, the brewery. They would see all the brewers standing up on the deck at Pyramid. When we built that, um, originally we had um, uh, 50-barrel copper stills that had come out of Czechoslovakia. They were beautiful. And we knew we were getting equipment from England, or I'm sorry, from Scotland uh, here at Copperworks. And so it was our intention to do exactly the same thing. Floor to ceiling glass, have the stills really close so that when you walk in, you can just see what's happening. And you don't have to kind of peer through a little window and hope that back there you see a little uh, activity. Instead, the, the brewer is right on, or the distiller is right on deck a few feet away from you. And that also really helped. That did mean that we needed to spend a lot more money getting the stills covered in lacquer so that they didn't immediately tarnish to black and look kind of horrible. But uh, we're really happy with the way the um, the stills look. We ended up buying four stills, uh, two for whiskey making, one for vodka, and one for gin. And so all of those are on display right in the front, right when you walk up into the tasting room. One of the great things about your setup, too, and, and, you know, from an engineering perspective and use of space and plant layout, you are so close to the Seattle Steamworks that you didn't have to install your own steam boiler because we, a massive amount of heat crazy. is required to run these stills. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Well, it's almost embarrassing how um, – so just short story is when when I opened up, when I opened up, I didn't actually know – that we had a steam plant right next door. Well, I, I won't say opened. When we signed the lease, I didn't know that we had a steam plant right next door. And so my architect said, oh, I guess you're going to use Seattle Steam Company for the uh, steam. And I says, oh, no, I've already stubbed in 2 million BTUs of uh, natural gas down in the basement. And he goes, why wouldn't you just use steam? And I said, well, what is Seattle Steam? And he says, they're right across the street. They serve 190 buildings, high-quality steam. So I walked over and knocked on the door. The rest is history. We said, yep, we're using steam. Turns out uh, the Pike Place Brewery has been using steam, and I should have known that, um, but it wasn't the original plant that I helped open, so we weren't using steam. But uh, they've been using steam ever since they opened their new place um, on First Ave 20 years ago, and they love it. And they serve 190 buildings around here with clean, green steam. And we now don't have a boiler. Instead, we get really high-quality steam right underground. And it's kind of the 
the, the biggest privilege in the world is not to have to deal with boiler operating licenses and chemical treatments and all that, and instead just have always on, always available steam. It's, it's a real treat. Obviously, Fantastic. sustainability is uh, very important to you. And how does that translate into other areas of copper works? Well, so one of the biggest impacts in a brewery and a distillery is water. Um, there's a lot of issues that we can uh, address, but one of the biggest one is water. With water, uh, a farmer, first of all, uses a ton of water to plant grain. Secondly is the brewery then uses 20 gallons of water for every gallon of beer they make. And then a distillery is uh, right up there with a brewery and then even a little bit more because they have all the condensing water. So depending on how they operate, they can be from 20 to 50 gallons of water per gallon of whiskey, which is just a lot of water. Now, we're fortunate. We're in Seattle. Um, we get a lot of good water here. But we're looking for ways to reduce that. So here's what we did. We started working with farmers that are salmon safe. That means they're non-irrigated farms. They don't have any runoff that goes into the rivers. That's starting at the, the beginning. We then moved to the breweries. And by working with large breweries, we actually make sweet wort. So that's beer with no yeast and no hops um, produced at the Pike Place Brewery, the Elysium Brewery in Georgetown, and Fremont Brewing in Ballard. And those breweries are huge compared to any regular-sized uh, distilleries, brew house, and they're incredibly efficient. They were built to be very big and efficient. So we get efficiencies instead of 20 gallons uh, uh, of water per barrel of beer, we get uh, equivalent to uh, four to eight gallons of water. And then working with the same company that helped us put in our glycol system, we put a cooling tower on the roof. It's kind of our Scottish river. That is to say it does all of the condensing and the chilling of water. And that's how instead of 10, I'm sorry, 70,000 gallons of water a batch to cool the whiskey as it's coming off of the stills back into the liquid, we use 1,000 gallons 70 times. And that, that wow. same 1,000 gallons is now usable for the next batch. Wow, that is really incredible and very commendable, Jason. I hope you're going to stay with us here for the next segment. We need to get to know more about the products that you make at Copperworks. More with Jason Parker coming up next on Cast Club Radio. Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. Right now, we are continuing our conversation with Jason Parker, co-founder and president of Copperworks Distillery. So, Jason, do you want to uh, talk for listeners about the specific products they can find from Copperworks, uh, what they look like, what they're called, and where they can get them? You bet. So, we make four flagship products that are available year-round. We make a, a Washington malt vodka, so that's from 100% Washington-grown malt. Uh, we make a gin from that vodka, and that is um, with 10 botanicals that have been uh, macerated for a day and then redistilled. So that's how the gin is made. Uh, we make a um, cask finish version of that gin, and that is um, basically put into a brand new charred American oak barrel and aged for and aged for only three and a half months, but it gives it this beautiful color and beautiful um, kind of transformation into what I call a ginsky. It's like a cross between a gin and a whiskey, so it's a brown gin. 
that I like to use in both gin and whiskey cocktails, like Old Fashions or Sazeracs. And then finally, uh, American single malt whiskey, which is 100% malted barley grown on local farms and aged in both new charred American oak. And now we are reusing our own barrels and also have some um, sherry casks that I was fortunate enough to go over to Spain and buy some. So uh, all of those whiskey, all of those products are available in um, Washington State and maybe 400 bars and restaurants and then another 150 grocery stores and liquor stores, including things like Total Wine, BevMo, uh, Metropolitan Markets, QSCs, a lot of the independent liquor stores that are still around, um, and then, you know, a variety of other um, Ken's markets and places like that that uh, we're getting into every day. We're still not into the Safeways and the Fred Meyers, but that's something we're working on this year. And uh, yesterday, or actually Friday of last week, we just went down to Las Vegas. That was a lot of fun. So we now have liquor in, oh, I don't know, 15 or 20 accounts in Las Vegas and about five or six grocery stores and liquor stores down there. So that's our first out-of-state um, distribution. We're pretty excited about it. We now finally have enough liquor to, to go there. Awesome. And then I'll Fantastic. just mention one more thing. We do some specialty products that are um, – are really fun. We do some cast finished gins that we put into used barrels. So we partner with breweries and distilleries to do uh, gin into a barrel that had previously had, say, IPA beer or a chai cider or a tina tonic syrup or an amaro or amaretto that was locally made. And we put gin in used cognac and calvados, mezcal and port and rum barrels. And those come out uh, quarterly. Pretty much we always have something going. Um, and then we're doing a lot of fun whiskey uh, events in which we put whiskey in different barrels and then invite people to come in uh, on a um, what we call a whiskey blending workshop. And we'll pull four of those barrels down onto the floor, taste through all four of them in sort of a structured tasting, and then give guidance into how to blend and have uh, up to 20 people blending their own whiskey, which they then go and dip the proportions they want out of each barrel, put it into their own bottle, and they go home with a, uh, a bottle of whiskey that they made custom. And if they're interested in any of those things, uh, any of our products, they're all available on coupleworksdistilling.com, and you can see under events and uh, tastings, uh, all the details about those. All right. That is Jason Parker from Copperworks Distillery. Thank you so much for joining us today. And everybody should go down there. You're down by the waterfront, right? That's right. Right across from the Ferris wheel. Yeah. And do a, do a tasting, take a tour of the distillery. And Wonderful. if you don't make it to downtown Seattle, be sure to ask your local liquor retailer, bar, or restaurant about Copperworks products. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jason. Well, it was wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity, and it's uh, great to chat with you guys again. All right. Well, we've talked a lot of whiskey in this episode of the show, Justin, but you have uh, one more whiskey item to leave us with, don't you? 
We do. Tomorrow is Sunday, the 25th. It is National Whiskey Sour Day. Whiskey Sour is a very classic cocktail, so we uh, have an interesting riff on a whiskey sour here for you. We are using a half ounce of the Raft Company Demerara Syrup. Demerara is a uh, partially refined light brown sugar cane that usually comes from Guyana. So you can find that Raft Demerara Syrup at Total Wine and More and uh, really any other place that has really high-quality mixing uh, items for cocktails. So we need a half ounce of that Demerara Syrup, one ounce of lemon juice, half an ounce of egg white, and uh, the egg white should be slightly whipped. And then two ounces of our Elk Rider blended whiskey or a batch number 12 whiskey. Get a shaker and uh, dry shake the lemon juice, egg white, and the raft syrup together. Add some ice, shake it again, and then strain it into a chilled glass with no ice. Uh, and then garnish it with a Luxardo cherry. We use the Luxardo high-quality maraschino cherries. Those are the ones with the yellow label and the very dark, deep purple uh, syrup that they sit in their amazing, authentic uh, Italian maraschino cherry. So enjoy on this National Whiskey Sour Day your very own whiskey sour. I I love a drink shaken with egg whites. It, it gives it such a nice texture. Yes, but if you're afraid of using egg whites, uh, you can skip that if you don't want to. It's so much better than any kind of sour mix, though. I will say. It is. <laughs> but I understand agree. if you're scared. I agree. All right. Well, if you have missed any episodes of Cast Club Radio, you can catch up at MyNorthwest.com and also at HeritageDistilling.com. We always make sure to post any of these articles or things that we discuss up at HeritageDistilling.com as well. That's right. And we're closing in almost at 100 episodes on the podcast at MyNorthwest.com. So lots of content, lots of interesting stories and great interviews. You can send us comments, questions, ideas, or topics at CastClubRadio at HeritageDistilling.com. You can follow us on Instagram and on Facebook. Just look for Cast Club Radio. And also don't forget to rate us on iTunes. Right. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Cask Club Radio, brought to you by Heritage Distilling. Check us out on MyNorthwest.com to learn more and catch up on past episodes. Cask Club Radio, brought to you by Heritage Distilling. 